All right, we're in Exodus 33 tonight. Show me your glory. We're going to do the chapter in two parts. And uh, part B will be verses 12 and following. So we'll do the first 11 verses tonight. Show me your glory is the title. Why don't you, uh, once you have it, if you're able to stand with us, stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 33, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, depart, go up from here, Exodus 33, 1, you and the people whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying to your descendants, I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanite, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Going up to a land flowing with milk, go up to a land flowing with milk and honey, for I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. When the people heard this sad word, they went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the sons of Israel, You are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now, therefore, put off your ornaments from you, that I may know what I shall do with you. So the sons of Israel stripped their, themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now, Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp a good distance from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And it came about whenever Moses went to the tent that all the people would arise and stand, each at the entrance of his tent, and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. Whenever Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. When all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship, each at the entrance of his tent. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Father, as we muse on these incredibly powerful, insightful words of Scripture, we already know, as your people, that the Word of God is alive, living, powerful, sharp, effective. Really, the only thing required is that we are a good soil, ready to have ears to hear what the Spirit says to us in this day, in this very hour. And there's a lot to be said tonight, Lord, and a lot for us to hear and to apply. Give us wisdom as we teach and receive the Word of God and act upon it. May you be glorified tonight. Show us your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, if you agree, would you say? Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Show me your glory. Verse 1, the Lord spoke to Moses. Now, what's happened in the previous chapter, if you're new to the book of Exodus or new to the most recent studies, is we are on the heels of the sin uh, with the golden calf, and the people took off their ornaments or their jewelry, and they gave it to Aaron, uh, who would be the first high priest of Israel, and the golden calf was constructed and the people committed sin around the golden calf and Moses came down to confront the people's sin. And you remember that they, 
he, he ground up the calf into powder, threw it in the water. The people drank that. Uh, it was an ugly scene. 3,000 people were executed, probably the ringleaders of what had taken place. And now the whole people of God were reeling and probably wondering what was going to happen next. And Moses went up to God. And in that role of mediator or intercessor, he said, Lord, please forgive the people's sin. And if you won't, then what? Blot me out of your book. And in an incredible act of, uh, I would just say, a shadow of the Messiah, the mercy of God, doing very much what Paul would say in Romans 9, uh, basically separate me, put me under the curse of God for the sake of my kinsmen, that is the Jewish people, said Paul, very much like Moses, of course, all following the lead of the Messiah. But the Lord said, no, whoever commits sin against me, I'll blot him out of my book. And that was kind of the last part of Exodus chapter 32. Whoever sins against me, I'll deal with him as an individual. And uh, you can see in the very last part, verse 35, the Lord smote the people because of what they did with the calf which Aaron had made. And that's where we leave off. And then we come to the Lord spoke to Moses. And so the Lord says, depart, go up from here, 33.1, you and the people. I want you to notice there's some distancing in the language. He doesn't say my people. He says the people whom you brought up from the land of Egypt to the land of which I swore to. And now he goes back to the promise to the patriarchs. We go all the way back to the time of Abraham, which we're talking about the original promise in Genesis 12 where God says, I'm selecting you. Leave your homeland. I'm going to show you the land. I'm going to make your descents as the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore. And this is the land that he swore to Abraham and then to the son of promise, Isaac, and then to Jacob. Jacob then becoming Israel. And you all remember the 12 tribes of Israel come from Jacob. To your descendants, I will give it. Despite what has happened in the ugly chapter of Exodus 32, God is always true to the oaths that he makes. And he swore a promise. And nothing was going to change that. But that generation that sinned against the Lord, I think most of you know, and this may be shocking if you haven't heard this before, but of that generation, really only two men uh, entered into the promised land. Not even Moses made it. They were all laid low in the wilderness because the writer of Hebrews says one reason, unbelief. They simply wouldn't take God at his word. And they didn't heed the warnings. And so God's going to be true for the sake of his promises nonetheless. Verse 2, I will send an angel. He doesn't say my angel. If you were with us previously when the Lord said my angel, for example, in 23-23 of Exodus or 32-24, Many scholars, many conservative scholars believe that that is the Messiah in the Old Testament or God the Son uh, as the angel of the Lord leading the people. But now it's not my angel, it's an angel. You would think just an angel from the normal ranks, if you will. Troubling signs that God is distancing himself again before you. And I will drive out, I'm gonna keep my promises, the Canaanite, the land, of course, is the land of Canaan, The Amorite, these are people groups who would be there. The Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Go up. 
to the land flowing with milk and honey, which has been described, uh, this land of promise, uh, as God is going to lead the people there. Now, I was reading one commentator who said that if you're curious about the time frame at Sinai, it's about 10 months that they've spent at Mount Sinai, give or take. So that just give you an idea. If you want to put it at about a year, that's the time that they've spent at the mountain of, of fire, you know, the law coming down, etc. All that time has been there. And now it's time to move on. It's a reminder of the big picture. Their exodus from Egypt was not about just arriving at Sinai and fumbling the ball and being cast out forever. God led them out of Egypt, a type of the world, to lead them into his promises. He had a land for them. He had a beautiful area that he had set aside. He had made promises hundreds of years before to the patriarchs about this land. And Abraham walked the land but never really owned anything there except for a graveyard. The promises would be realized in that next generation. And you know, as they go into the land and spy it out, they, of course, continue to wallow in unbelief. So it's always good to be reminded of the big picture, right? Sometimes in our lives, you know, we get caught in the weeds of a lot of different things. But we need to know where we're going. We need to know the big plan because life can come at us in such uh, you know, there's so many layers to life that we can get lost in those details. And so the big plan is that you've been rescued out of Egypt. I'll put that in quotes. And you're headed to the promised land. <laughs> Amen. Now we're already, we already have the promises in Jesus, but the, the full fulfillment of our redemption still waits. And we'll talk about that as we go on. And so the Exodus was not just about getting out of there. It was about where they were headed and I hope you know where you're headed in terms of your own life. An accompanying angel would be there. The land was flowing with milk and honey. So far, so good. So God's going to bring them out. He's going to be true to the oath that he made. But there is a catch. Verse 3. For I will not go up in your midst, because you are an obstinate people, and I might destroy you on the way. Oh, one caveat. I'm not going with you. Now I want you to just let that sink in for a second. Because the only thing that makes the people of Israel the people of Israel, the only thing that makes me the man I am, you the man or woman that you are, is who I am in Jesus Christ. That's how pretty much I look at my life now. Amen? Can you imagine being this people, experiencing everything that you've experienced, you blow it, you, you know, you commit this terrible sin. Now you hear a renewed hope. A lot of people have died. There's been a, some sort of plague that's happened. And now God says, okay, uh, we're going. We're going to move on to the promised land. Just one caveat. I'm not going with you. That is brutal. Riken writes in his commentary, in the novel The Hobbit by Tolkien, he tells how Bilbo Baggins and a dozen dwarves traveled to the lonely mountain, defeated a terrible dragon, and returned home with golden treasures. Their companion for the first part of the journey was Gandalf the Grey, a man of unusual wisdom and extraordinary power. Gandalf served as the guardian and guide, and sometimes their savior. But Gandalf could not always be with them. Midway through their journey, as they 
where tra- as the traveling party prepared to enter the forest of Mirkwood, they unexpectedly learned that Gandalf would not be going with them. This unhappy news was greeted with instant dismay. The dwarves groaned and looked most distressed, and Bilbo wept. They had begun to think, to think Gandalf was going to come all the way and would always be there to help them through all their difficulties. They begged him not to leave. They offered him dragon gold and silver and jewels, but he would not change his mind. When traveling through dangerous and unfamiliar territory, says Riken, it is good to have a guide and devastating to lose one. And if you've ever been somewhere where you didn't really know the surroundings or you didn't really know where you were going, if you had a local, if you had someone who knew the territory and knew the you know, language and the ways and stuff like that, it made life a whole lot easier. But you can, you can imagine the power of that example in uh, you know, Tolkien's work and you can imagine how much more significant this is. It's not that God couldn't control his anger. His distancing himself from the people here is an act of mercy. Remember, they had broken his law, broken the covenant, and what they deserved was to be wiped out. They deserved the wrath of God. And so God, in an act of mercy, says, I'm not going to go with you because should I go with you, I would destroy you. And remember, the limited divine presence is an act of mercy But God's intention, if you've been with us, in laying out the whole tabernacle was to dwell among his people, to be in the center of the tribes. When you look at the configuration of the tribes, it actually makes the sign of a cross and the tabernacle sits in the middle of it. And now God is not going to be in the middle of the people. He's going to be outside the camp. He's going to be distanced from them. Jesus came to tabernacle among us we know to dwell among us in John 1.14, we beheld his glory, says John. But what separates us from what God wants to do in our lives is one word. And the word you all know well is sin. Sin separates us from God. And the people had sinned and God is holy. And that holiness has been on display all through the book of Exodus. Our God is a consuming fire. When the people heard this sad word, verse 4, They went into mourning, and none of them put on his ornaments. That seems to be a comprehensive way to describe their jewelry that they left Egypt with. When the people heard this, they went into a sad mourning. Can you imagine the heartbreak for those who had come to trust the Lord? What would it mean to you to face life without God? What would it mean to you if someone walked in to a church service, for example, or in some setting and said to you, uh, I have some tough news. Here's the news. Uh, God has decided he no longer wants to be with humans. He's decided to revoke his promises, (laughs) to take away what you had hoped for. I mean, can you imagine how devastated you and I would be. I I mean, I I survey the room and those who are watching tonight, and I know we have a lot of committed believers, and you've built your whole lives on this foundation of God being at the center of everything that you are and where you're headed and your values and all of that. Can you imagine how hard it must have hit Aaron and others who were, you know, Levites and in the inner circle? 
I'm not going with you. And the people cried. And I'm sure it was a very, very sad scene. Maybe if you could imagine in your mind one of the saddest funerals you've ever been at or a sad time you've ever experienced, well, there you have it. What would it mean to face life without God? No divine presence in the camp. No tabernacle. Nothing sacred. But is this where we're headed as a culture? See, we have lost a sense of the sacred in our culture. Let me just walk it out for you a second. I think you and I both know that there are a lot of people who want the promises of God without the presence of God. For example, there are a lot of people who want to pray a sinner's prayer and they want to end up in the good place, that would be heaven, but they don't really want any accountability to God. They don't want Jesus to be the king of their life. They simply want to get out of hell free card and then they're going to live their life however they are going to live it. They want the promises without the promiser. They want the benefits of the kingdom without the king. They don't want the accountability. They don't want anything that goes with it. So let's not be shocked. In fact, some people might say, well, it might be better that way. Then I don't have to keep the rules. Then I don't have to worry about the Ten Commandments or anything else. And that's where we are today. Diminishing numbers of people who claiming to be Christians, people who want heaven, but they don't want the God of heaven. That's the situation that Israel was in. Think about the implications. Think about Israel without a tabernacle. All the tabernacle furniture points to Christ, including the tent itself. Imagine, there's no altar of sacrifice. There's no labor of cleansing. There's no lampstand for life. Light, there's no table of showbread, there's no incense for prayer, there's no ark for atonement, there's no glory. What do you do now? What do you do if you're Israel and everything that made you who you are is now gone? God forbid that that would ever happen, for example, in the country that I think we all love. But here we are. And we have to ask some profound questions about where we're at in terms of our own life. Oh God, maybe, they, maybe it spread around the camp quickly. Can you hear it? God's not going with us. God's not going with us. God's not going with us. What? Yeah, he's done. It's over. He says we're too stiff-necked. It's game over. The zeros have hit the scoreboard. Now what? But you know, in our culture, there are people who have turned away from their faith. They, they don't want God anymore. They'd prefer to go it alone. Hey, as long as we're still booked for the promised land, God's canceled his reservation. Well, we can get on without him. According to Peter Enns, he says the following, the significance of this turn of events cannot be stressed too highly. The whole purpose of the Exodus was for God and his people to be together. God's presence with them will be firmly established in the proposed tabernacle. By saying, go ahead, but you're going without me, the events of the previous 31 chapters are being undone. This is not merely a setback. It means the end of the road. 
if, if we don't have God, what do we do? But in our culture, I have to say again, we've kicked God out of a lot of places. So here's where we are. Someone might put it this way. We'll take the offer of blessing without a relationship. This is really what we want. Defeat our enemies for us. Take away the obstacles. Give us the milk and honey. But don't bother to stick around after that. I hope that's not how we live. And so maybe for some people it didn't even matter. For others, they were mourning. What caused all of this? An act of idolatry. Our idols will always push us farther away from God. Amen? Our idols will never draw us closer to him. For the Lord had said to Moses, so say to the sons of Israel, five, you are an obstinate people. Should I go up in your midst for one moment, I would destroy you. Now therefore put off your ornaments from you that I may know what I shall do with you. And all God's people said, yikes. <laughs> you ever, uh, I can remember growing up and maybe a parent said something like that. Just go to your room and we'll figure out what we're going to do with you. <laughs> Go to your room, wait till your father gets home. Go to your room and we'll figure out how many weeks you're going to be on restriction and what you'll have left after that time is over. And you're in your room. <laughs> so the sons of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments or their jewelry from Mount Horeb onward. For the next 40 years, they didn't put on their jewelry again. In the Near East cultures, uh, outward garb was uh, in keeping with the event. So if you took off your jewelry or you put on garments of mourning, you would do that in keeping with what was happening in your life. From the language of verse 6, it appears that the people of Israel took off the jewelry that they had won or by God's victory had won in Egypt and never put it on again. Get this. They went mourning for 40 years as a result of their sin. That is tragic. But there's something else here, and I think that some of you are seeing some of these connections they had used the jewelry to do what? To make the golden calf. The jewelry had somehow tied to their idolatry. So in removing the jewelry, it became an outward sign of what? True repentance. See, there was a link from the jewelry that they had given Aaron to the golden calf, to everything that had happened. And by taking it off and getting rid of it and going virtually four decades without it, they were walking in true repentance. Do you want to know when you've truly repented? When you cast off your idols and you don't put them back on. Amen? When you don't hide the idol in a closet until maybe a more you know, opportune time. I'm done with that. But let me put that right over here just in case I'm not done with that. <laughs> what? That's just self-deception, brethren. 
That's all that is. You see, if you're serious about your idols, then you take them off and you get rid of them. And so from Horeb, which is another name for Sinai, they took them off. They made their appearance plain, a sign of mourning, and they moved forward. What they had once taken off in sinful actions, says one writer, they must now take off as a reminder that they were in mourning because of the results of that sinful action. And so they go about from Sinai onward mourning. This is what sin can do. Unfortunately, it can affect uh, a lot of decades into the future. And so we know we've become serious about sin when we get rid of it and decide to leave it off. Their mourning, I would put this before you, had moved in the right direction. The Bible talks about the difference between godly sorrow and ungodly sorrow. Godly sorrow actually leads you to what? To repentance. See, when someone is boohooing over their sin, sometimes it's just because they got caught. Sometimes it's because they just don't want the consequences of what's happened as a result of that fall. But when you realize that you've sinned against God and you get serious about getting rid of that, then all of a sudden you're moving in godly sorrow. For the sorrow that is according to the will of God 2 Corinthians 7.10 produces a repentance without regret, leading to salvation. The sorrow of the world produces death. Isaiah 61 puts it this way. The spirit of the Lord is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting. So they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. And when Jesus came into the synagogue at Nazareth, he read from Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And he had, he's come to turn our mourning into dancing. Amen? To lift the burdens of our sin. Our sin was nailed to the cross. Therefore, we have salvation joy. Amen? We're filled with hope. We know that our sin has been dealt with once for all. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed the, my transgressions from me, from you, from us. And so this is the good news of the gospel. Sin causes a lot of trouble, but the Messiah was coming. Now Moses used to take the tent seven and pitch it outside the camp. This tent is going to be distinct from the tabernacle. We'll talk about that in a second. A good distance, uh, some of the versions say far off from the camp. So where all the tents were that the Israelites lived in by tribe, the, this particular tent was a good distance away. He called it the tent of meeting, distinct from the tabernacle. Just side note, the tabernacle has not been built yet. That'll be in chapters 35 through 40. So even though the plans have been given for the tabernacle, it has not been built, built yet. And everyone who sought the Lord 
would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. So it, it appears that what was happening at this point is that there was another smaller tent. It was set outside the camp. It had no Ark of the Covenant, none of the furnishings. They hadn't been built yet. But it was a tent of meeting nonetheless. And it was a place distanced from the people, not in the center of them anymore. And people notice everyone who sought the Lord could go out to this tent of meeting. And this is a tent where two primary individuals spent a lot of time, Moses, the mediator, and Joshua. I want you to get this now. Get this picture. The people have taken off their jewelry. They've, they've shown a sign of corporate repentance. Now, where you've set up shop with all these uh, tents and tribes, there's a tent way off in the distance. Now we're moving from corporate identity to individual responsibility. And let me say to you that there's a big difference between sitting in a congregation and nodding your head and showing up a couple times a month and taking individual responsibility with God. And if you were gonna take this walk back in the day, here's what it would mean. You had the garments of mourning. You, you got up and you said something like this. You know what? I'm going out to God. Whoever wanted to seek the Lord, he would be found. You see, he was distant, but he was still near. And you'd have to take the walk. And when you took the walk, guess what? Everybody knew now you're getting a little serious with God. Oh, that walk. You know that walk? It's one thing to be in the crowd. It's one thing to do what everybody else does. If they hold up their phone, you hold up their phone, your phone. But it's another thing to take the walk. You know what I'm saying? We walk by faith. Some of you have felt compelled at times during church services, come down for prayer, make, make a public confession, and you were like, uh, I kind of want to, but oh, you got frozen because you didn't want to stand out. But Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before my Father who's in heaven. And if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father who's in heaven. See, if you want to remain in the outer seats, you can do that. There's plenty of room there. Plenty of room to sit in the crowd and never really identify yourself and never step out because you don't want to take the heat or you don't want other people in the tribes to say, oh, there he goes. Hey, there's Holy Joe. I guess he's getting serious about his walk. Look, he still didn't have his necklace on. And I hope and I pray that you've planted your flag. You know what I'm saying? You see, you're going to have to decide at some point, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And if you are, you can't be afraid to stand even if you have to walk alone. Because you won't walk alone. Don't you think it's time to step up? Let's turn over to the book of Hebrews 13. The book of Hebrews is a setting where there's persecuted Christians who, I, who are a Hebrew Christians. They're feeling a lot of pressure to return to the law, the temple. There's persecution. People are losing property. Some people perhaps paying even with their lives. And in Hebrews 13, the final chapter of the letter, the writer says these words. 
He says, therefore, Jesus 13, 12 of Hebrews. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go to him, where? Outside the camp. I think this is a direct reference back to the book of Exodus. Let us go to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here, we don't have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips giving thanks or that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. You skip down to verse 18. It says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And now, 20, a beautiful benediction prayer. The God of peace who brought up from the dead the great shepherd, the sheep, the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be the glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, amen. amen. The sermon is not over just in case you wondered. <laughs> Although that would have been a reasonable place to end, but that's not the church that you're in. Back to Exodus <laughs> 33. You all know that by now, right? Now we're only going up to verse 11. We're at verse 8 in Exodus 33. It came about whenever Moses went out to the tent. So now we're still talking about that distant tent all, that all the people would arise and stand in the ancient world as well as today, a symbol of respect they would stand each at the entrance of his tent and gaze after Moses until he entered the tent. So here's what would happen. All the people were in this tent. There was this little tent of meeting way out there. And Moses regularly would get up and head for that tent. And when he did, everybody walked outside their tent, stood in respect and attention, and then gazed after Moses. There he goes. Now, what do you think they were thinking about? He's going out to the tent of meeting. There goes, I think, I'm going to take a positive spin. There goes our mediator. Remember how we lost respect for him? You remember how, you know, maybe stories were coming out that up on the mountain, Moses had interceded. Perhaps, I don't know. Maybe it came out that he said to God, blot me out of your book. And the mediator got up and as he went up, they watched him and they gazed after him, probably wondering what would happen. Was God gonna be faithful and come down among us again because his presence was now limited? What was going to happen? And so the people stood and they watched. And this tent of meeting was there outside the camp. And whenever Moses entered the tent, nine, the pillar of cloud, which represents God's Shekinah, if you will, would descend. God was still descending or condescending to meet with Moses and stand at the entrance of the tent. And the Lord would speak with Moses. Now, off in the distance, the people saw Moses go into the tent, much like he went up on Sinai, and they would see the glory cloud come down. And I think it had to do their hearts a lot of good. Amen? Because they had been hearing, God's not going with us. God's not going with us. 
But there was some hope in the distance because Moses was still mediating and God was still condescending. And there's a beautiful gospel picture there. And so God descended and he would speak with Moses and the people were watching and there was hope. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would arise and worship. It looks like they would stand up and then perhaps bow down, prostrate to the ground, each at the entrance of his tent. So Moses would get up, go out to that tent. God would come down and the people would all rise up and worship. They were learning to become worshipers. These were signs that their outward display of taking off the jewelry wasn't just a show. I was reading uh, author this week, and he was saying, you, you can know when something's not happening of the Spirit because it has to become more showy. He was saying, you got, you got to dress it up when the Spirit's not moving. But they dressed it down. They took all the jewelry off. They humbled themselves under God's mighty hand, and God condescended. And the Lord used to speak to Moses, final verse, face to face, just as a man speaks to his friend, when Moses returned to the camp, his servant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. It appears that if you approach this tent, it was tightly guarded by a man named Joshua. No Levitical priest there. Aaron wasn't guarding the tent. Joshua was. Why? Well, Joshua had not been involved in the sin of the golden calf. In fact, when Moses was coming down with the law, Joshua said, I hear a noise in the camp. It sounds like the noise of war. And Moses said, oh no, that's not what's going on. And Joshua now has a role of protecting the tent of meeting, apparently so nobody else can go in except Moses. Why Joshua? Well, Joshua was innocent in terms of the sin, but here's another thing. Joshua is a picture of Jesus as well. He is our ultimate mediator. I mean Jesus, not Joshua. And so the Lord would speak to Moses face to face. What does this mean? Because in the second half of Exodus 33, God will say to Moses, no one can see my face and live. And people who had encounters with God, we would say theophanies, like, for example, uh, Manoah and his wife, Samson's parents, they said, we've seen the Lord. We're dead. <laughs> and then the wife said, well, if he wanted to kill us, he wouldn't have accepted the sacrifice, right? But people who had encounters with God and realized it was God, like Hagar in the book of Genesis, uh, they, they were concerned for their lives. What does it mean that Moses had face-to-face -face communication with God. Let's look at a couple parallel passages as we wind down. Deuteronomy, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We'll go to Deuteronomy 34, and then we're going to come back to Numbers. Show you just two important passages. 34, 9 of Deuteronomy. Since then... 34, 9, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Now to the book of Numbers, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, chapter 12. 
Numbers 12. What does it mean that Moses had this kind of relationship with God? In Numbers 12, verse 6, he said, Hear now my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, shall make myself known to him in a vision. I shall speak with him in a dream. Numbers 12, 7. Not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all my household. With him I speak. Now, here's another expression, mouth to mouth. Let me just park here for a second. Face to face is a Jewish idiom. What do you mean, Pastor Michael? It is a Hebraic figure of speech. We might say it this way, heart to heart. What do we mean by that? We don't mean that both our hearts are touching. We're not talking about literal stuff here. We're talking about a relational idiom. Here's an example. I'm married. I have a face-to-face -face relationship with my bride. There's few people that I get right in their face. Paul Hicks did that before he moved to Prescott and usually gave me some anointing <laughs> along with it. Hey, Bubba, what you here, Bubba? Paul, if you're watching, hi, Paul. And I can't say that I minded it because he was just oozing with the love of God. Although sometimes I did get sprayed <laughs> with anointing stuff. But anyway, it's another story. Face-to-face -face does not mean Moses saw God's face. It is an idiom meaning he had a close personal communication with God. Now, what Moses desires later in part B of this chapter will be realized. Hold that thought. We'll come back to that. So God would speak with him face to face, you could say, mouth to mouth, another figure of speech, even openly, not in dark sayings, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Now, of course, Moses did see the form of God in the Shekinah. Uh, I think it's Exodus 24.10 says that uh, Moses, Aaron, and some of the leaders saw the God of Israel. What did they see? Something like pavement under his feet of sapphire. It's hard to describe. We're using human language to try to describe, you know, interacting with, you know, the glory, uh, the glorious God of the universe. But God says, why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant, uh, against Moses? Uh, a warning there, but you get the insight. Now, later in the chapter, Moses will ask God, he will say, please, I pray you, show me your glory. And third day, walk that out, I want to see your face. And when we deal with this in the next study, I will uh, we'll dig a little bit and look at the fact that I think that's exactly what Moses is saying. I think Moses is saying, I know there's more could I see you in that way? And God says, no. You can't see my face and live, but I'm going to allow my beauty, or it actually says this, all my goodness to pass by you, and I'll hide you in the rock, and I'll cover you, and you'll get to see a glimpse of the glory. But you're not going to see my face because you would die. I don't think the problem is that God wouldn't want to accommodate that. 
The problem is that we are fallen human beings and we couldn't handle it. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of heaven. We can't see God in our current fallen state in his full glory and live. Now, two New Testament scriptures and we're done. I want you to go, first of all, to 1 Corinthians 13, maybe three New Testament scriptures. 1 Corinthians chapter 13. This is the famous love chapter. And Paul's talking about you can have all the gifts in the world, but if you don't have love, you're nothing. And there's a bunch of controversy about when the perfect comes, what that means, and all of that. I think most scholars agree the perfect is the return of Christ and so forth. And, and Paul's using some analogies, and he says in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 13, when the perfect comes, the partial will be done away. He's talking about the gifts mentioned in the previous verses. When I was a child, here's an illustration or analogy. I used to speak like a child, think like a child, reason like a child. When I became a man, I did away with child, childish things. Now we see in a mirror dimly. Then, when the perfect comes, that's why I think it can't be the canon or something else. It's got to be the actual eschaton, the return of the Lord, the, the future eternal state, if you will. Then, face to face, now I know in part, then I will know fully, just as I have been fully known. Many scholars like to say that a glimpse of this happened at the Mount of Transfiguration when Peter knows it's Moses and Elijah talking to Jesus. How does he know? Because he got a taste of the future. He got a taste of the kingdom. He got a taste of the face-to-face when we will know even as we are known. Amen? Will you know people in heaven? Yes. You'll know people that you didn't even know before. You won't be dumber than you are now. <laughs> Praise God. <laughs> and I know for some of you, this is really an important thing. Because for some of you, you wonder, will I know my loved one in heaven? Can I answer that? Yes. Better than you've ever known them before. Praise the Lord. Go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at just one verse. The whole setting is Moses interacting with the glory of God. This, there's more to come on this. I'm just going to wet your whistle with this one. But we all, 2 Corinthians 3.18, with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. Here it is. From glory to glory. Just as from the Lord the Spirit. More to come on that. And then all the way to Revelation 22. The very last chapter. The very last chapter. It describes uh, the water of life, the river. It describes the tree of life uh, all these beautiful restoration images of what was lost is now restored. And now in Revelation 22, 3, it says these words, there will no longer be any curse. 22, 3. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, this new Jerusalem, this holy city, and his bondservants will serve him. And they will what? See his face. 
brethren, I sometimes I, when I sit and muse on scripture and I think about my future and our future, this is where I land. Show me your glory. Lord, I want to see your face. And I said to someone in the prayer meeting before this service, and I don't think I'm ever going to want to leave. Because I think if you're resonating with my heart, one of my deepest desires is to see him. Amen? Amen? And we are going to realize what Moses asked for. We will see his face. Can you imagine what that's going to be like? Can you imagine? I mean, I don't even know if I can try to figure out what that might be. How deep and wide and glorious and I don't know, but I'll tell you this. I'm just going to take it at face value. We are going to see his face. Father, thank you for this section in the book of Exodus Moses will cry in the next section, show me your glory, Lord. Oh, how we want to see you. And when that day comes, we will be like you, 1 John says, for we will see you just as you are. And everyone who has this hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. It's not totally clear everything that's going to happen, but here's what we know. When he comes, when he returns, we're going to see him. Our eyes will look upon him. The glory of the triune God. I mean, start to try to think about that theologically. I think it's going to be better than we could ever imagine. Richer, deeper, more exciting you think heaven's going to be boring? You think the future is boring? No way. It's going to be glory. Now, would you stay in an attitude of worship just for a moment? For those of you who know the Lord, would you allow his Holy Spirit to move, work, bring truth home to you? Things that jumped out, meditate on those things. Make them yours. Father, I want to walk that out. Lord, I want to remember that. Lord, I want to meditate on that. Now, if you're a backslidden believer, maybe the pictures of mourning and repentance are for you. You'd finally cast off those idols, tear them off, get rid of them. Not that you would walk in mourning, but you would walk to the one who can restore you. And if you're not a Christian, I gotta be honest with you, you're under the judgment of God because of your sin. But Jesus Christ took your punishment at the cross, nailed your sins and mine to the cross, was treated on the cross as though he had committed our sins, though he was innocent, spotless lamb of God. He died in your place. You have to have a moment where you turn from your sin and place your trust not only in his death, but in his triumph and resurrection. You must believe. Turn from your sin, turn from your idols, and trust him. And if you've never done that before, maybe you've never taken the long walk to the tent. <laughs> it's time. And you know what? He won't cast out anybody who comes to him.